I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better while you become better at leading people, catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of. I love that Mike Yates has a big mission because as a mom of a teenager, this gives me hope. He is transforming the kindergarten through 12th grade education experience, working tirelessly to disrupt and innovate school as a team leader at Alpha, which is an innovative, independent school that uses adaptive learning software in place of direct instruction. This means that students are co-creating curriculum and that their voices are heard and acted upon. Not only does he teach kids public speaking, he also teaches them public listening. I hope this inspires teachers and schools to listen to students in new ways. Enjoy listening in. Your passion for changing education, impacting education in a different way seems to be where your heart is. I'm curious about when that first started, what's something that you know now that you didn't know back then? I just know more about school and more about doing things differently. So for me, it was like in seventh grade, I had a really bad experience with a teacher and it caused me to be very cynical about school. But I also knew like a large portion of this is I knew not to agree and I knew to look at school with a very skeptical eye. So as I became a professional, I found myself in education in these scenarios that showed me something very specific that was wrong with the school system. So my first teaching experience was in a juvenile detention center in this small town in Texas. And it was what's considered a last stop center. So that means kids go there before they go to prison. So these kids are in it for the long haul. And so we were teaching music and poetry at this place. And what was amazing about it was that you had these kids that had done all sorts of things, but they were engaging with poems and writing poems and writing music. And that's where I learned, okay, like this is powerful, but something is wrong because all these kids are here. And I started asking them about their school experience before they got sent to, to juvie. And everyone said things like, oh, like I hated it. Oh, my teachers hated me. Oh, my teachers were out to get me. And I'm like, okay, so I'm working with 30 guys, even if half of them are lying and half of them are playing the victims, I got to consider like at least some of them must actually feel that way or that may have actually been the case. The evidence that I had from my school experience showed me that my teachers weren't always on my side. I went into private school, I went into public school, I went into charter school, sort of searching for like, what is the right school model? And every stop that I made, I found something where I was just like, this is not right. For me, like I was like, I just can't exist in this system because I'm complicit in this if I stay here. So I eventually came home one day and told my wife, I'm just, the school that I wanna work at is the one that I'm gonna have to build. So I left and I started researching and thinking about what it takes to start my own school. And then I found Alpha, where I am now, uh, which is not a school that I founded, but if I were to have started a school 
two years ago, it would look very, very similar to what Alpha is. And so it's just this constant process of frustration leading me to what's different. When you were digging and trying to understand why these kids really had that perception mm -hmm. and knowing that your experience was probably different, what is it that made people think that way? You know, this perception. I mean, a lot of cases, it might actually be, it's, I don't want to say it's true, but uh, in the mind of a child, that could be seen as very true. So for me, you know, what was different for me is that my mother was a teacher. My mother was teaching my whole life. So I knew that like I never came home and my mom would like sit on the couch and go, God, I just hate this kid. I need to find a way to fail this kid. Like she would never do anything like that. Um, and so I knew that when people said like, oh, this teacher just doesn't like me. I would literally tell my friends when I was growing up, like you realize like that teacher probably doesn't think about you at all when they leave this building with negative thoughts, right? Like they're probably proud of something you did, but they're not like, oh, I hate this kid. I hope this kid, I hope his life sucks. Like, you know, that's just not the reality. I knew that reality, but I also know that there are things that happened to me in the school system that made me feel like nobody was on my side, specifically in, in the seventh grade. I wrote this paper that I was really proud of, and I have always been a pretty good writer. And so I turn this paper in, and my teacher tells me that she thinks that I plagiarized. And the type of person I've always been is like, if I didn't do something, I'm not going down for it. Like, I'm not going down quietly. And I was like, no, like, this is not right. So she gave me a zero for that. And I fought it. There was turnitin.com. So I was like, let's use this, right? Like, let's use it. And the originality report came back and confirmed that I did not plagiarize, that I used the correct amount of sources. And she said, no, I don't believe it. Technology's too new. I took it to the principal. And in the end of that fight, she won that fight. And I walked away from that as a seventh grader with the attitude that like school is not here to support me. My school is not here to encourage me. My school is not here for me to learn. My school is here for me to jump through hoops because right? I took it all the way. I took it as far as I could go and I got squashed because it looked like they were trying to protect their teacher. And the saddest part about this is that that school was the same school where my mother taught, right? And so you had a staff member and her son fighting and they sided with this teacher. So I can see, like, I, I understand how a kid could say, I feel targeted at school, right? Like, I feel like my teachers are not on my side because I've been there. I've also had the reverse experience where a lot of these kids in this juvenile detention center didn't have the chance to have in a school setting. I had a teacher that went over and above for me. He was my speech coach. We once had a, a member of our team that got wrongfully disqualified and he stood up on a table and made this very movie-like speech about why the whole tournament was wrong for disqualifying him. And then we all stormed out. I'll never forget that. But not everybody's had that experience, right? So I think it's just in the mind of a child, they may in those moments feel like, you know, nobody's here for me because sometimes processes and procedures and sometimes cultural differences and communication barriers actually do create that for a child. You know, it's interesting. One of my friends that does research on listening, he says that there's research that shows that if, let's say your child comes to you and wants to tell you something and they had a great experience and you're busy working, you're late and you're like, well, you know, tell me later, I've got to finish this. And you stop that process. They will have a negative memory of that positive experience, which is a little bit different because with those situations that you're talking about took it even farther than that. Yeah. And you had support from your mom. You had other people support in fighting, you know, even this one. And still it was who knows what happened, but there's a lot of factors that were taken into consideration. Yeah. Right. I've heard you say, use the word experience from the experience that you had, not maybe what happened, but what even students experience. Like, how does that play out? 
Yes. One, one thing that's interesting is that like in the mind of a middle school or high school student or you know elementary school, that mind is completely different than an adult. So you tell them something, right? And they will filter it through their brain and what they say out of their mouth about what you said or about what you did or about what they went through. Like that is reality for them. And, and it is hard to say like, hey kid, no, that didn't happen, right? And that's not easy as an adult, right? It's not easy to have a kid say like, oh, this is what I thought you said, or this is what I heard you said. And, you know, they're misquoting you or whatever. I think that the role of the school, and hopefully we're able to do this at Alpha, is to create a shared experience between all parties, right? Like the adults in the building and the kids in the building, where everybody can agree, like, that was a good experience. And the way we do it is just like, we ask kids explicitly about everything, right? Like, you do something where like, hey, what do you feel about that? Was that boring? Did it suck? Like, how can we get better? We try to put them in the driver's seat as much as possible so that we can have this, we can like essentially co-create an experience together. So if before I move forward on a project assignment, whatever, if I'm talking to them and getting their feedback and then I'm getting it afterwards, then they know, okay, like I am a part of this process. So sort of like the example you gave, instead of like, hey, kids, stop, I'm busy. I got to build this lesson plan. It's like, no, 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 come here. I got to ask you, what about these pieces? Now their memory of that situation is not only like, oh, that thing was really fun and I did it. Like, (laughs) and I think for kids, it's really empowering and really, really important. The the example I would give is I created this event called Alpha Talks in our school. I gave a student, I was like, you're going to design the shirts for this event. Um, Now I had already like made the logo. I've made basically made everything. I was like, here's my like press kit thing. So she designs these shirts and uh, everybody's wearing them. And she's like, oh my gosh, look at my shirt. Can we create a fashion workshop? Can I... And like, I mean, she didn't do much. She, she just went on like custominc.com and like rearranged some things. But to her, like, she's a part of the Alpha Talks team, right? Like she's a part of the thing that made that, that event work, even though she didn't coach any kids, right? She didn't give a speech, but she designed the shirts. And so I think when you talk about experiences, everybody experiences an event differently. And you want to try to, at school, come to the same conclusion about what just happened. In that event. How do you do that? <laughs> I mean, like, it's not easy, but I think the way to do it is just to constantly ask kids and let kids vet the program. Let them, let, like, get rid of things if they don't like them, right? If they don't work. You know, at our school, you know, learning is heavily app-based. We don't have lecture. You know, kids are learning on math app, reading app, science app, right? We'll ask a kid, like, do you like this app? Thumbs up, thumbs down, right? We'll do the whole survey. And if all the kids are like, this app sucks, I hate this app, we would never the app's good for you. So just get, we were like, all right, we'll find a new one. And we replace that new app. And then we keep getting feedback from kids. We have these workshops and we ask kids like, Hey, how was that workshop? Did you enjoy the workshop? And if the kids are like, no, I don't like that workshop, then it probably won't be back. If not enough kids sign up for a workshop, we won't run it. And because kids know that their voice has power, we're putting them in situations where they can easily voice their opinions and where we will hear, where we will actively listen and respond. And so we're actually choosing humility so that we can create an experience where the kid walks away and says, I love coming to school. And we also say, I love coming to work because my kids love coming to school. So I, I think it's like the way to create the environment where, or the experience where all parties agree, just communication. It's talking and listening, talking and listening, and then responding. I was just thinking, you're talking about like a cycle that's asking, 
you know, and actually probably from asking and then they're responding and then that you show that you're listening. Now they're more likely to come to you and tell you where maybe in the beginning, they probably wouldn't have thought about doing that. Absolutely. Like when I taught in a traditional classroom, I actually had students that would say, well, I'm really intimidated. I, like, I don't want to come, I don't want to come ask you. I don't want to come tell you I'm struggling. And now I have kids that will walk up to me and say, hey, Mike, you know that thing that you just did in the workshop? Yeah. And they're like, that was lame. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. And, and I'm like, well, tell me how to fix it. Like, I don't want it to be lame. And they will sit down with me and come up with solutions. I have a student that like, if I'm running late to a workshop, he will come get me and be like, hey. It's, it's time. Like, let's go. <laughs> We're waiting on you. And he gives me a one minute warning before, hey, one minute, just so you know, you need to start walking over there. And that environment is, for the kid, it's empowering, but it's also, it's very challenging as an adult, but refreshing at the same time, because you want to build those things, right? The hardest place to do that is like in your own home. Like for me, my kids are homeschooled. The hardest place to do that is because I feel like there's more stakes, right, with my kids. But in a school setting, empowering kids to be able to to listen and be heard, but also talk at you, like give you that feedback without asking for it is really, really important. How do we do that when the stakes are high, you know, or when we assume the stakes are high? I just think it's leaning on, if there's two parents in the home, identify which one is better and lean on them. I also do a horrible job with this, right? Like my wife is, she is a better parent than me in every way. And I do a bad job of listening to her often. But when I really think about it and sit down, like she's normally right about it. And she's very good at, I think one of the reasons why she is so good is because she's very good at making each one of our kids, we have four kids. Their ages are six, four. Our two-year-old's going to turn three on Friday. And then we have a one-year-old. Oh so we, we have very close together. And, and, but she's very good at, way better than me, at making them all feel heard. Like making them all feel like, Whatever the thing they're talking to her about, she really cares about. She's very, 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 very good at that. And a lot of it for her comes out of an experience where she didn't get that growing up. Um, Neither did I. And so I just think it's, I've got to lean on her at home and I have to follow, sort of follow her lead in that way. Like figure out how to, you know, talk to my daughter about unicorns when I don't really care about unicorns, but she, that's, that's like right now it's her favorite thing in the world. My son will sit down with me and talk to me about dinosaurs. And when I try to pronounce the name correctly, he will correct me of the name of the dinosaur, right? Like It's those moments where at the end of the day, we've got to be able to be in the same space and agree that this experience that we've had together was great, right? So very similar, but I think at home is just leaning on the right person. And what about at school? Like, so you have, you know, you said it's like tough for the adults, a little bit tougher. So you have adults, teachers who are coming in and we've grown up with a certain system, which is different than this system, right? We had different ways of doing things and you're like, you've kind of flip-flop things around yeah. here. And so how do you support or how are the teacher supported to be able to be able to walk the talk? Because it's also kind of going a little bit against our patterns. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I think some of it's labeling, you know, at Alpha, the interesting thing is that it's a really hard. So the role we don't call teacher, we call it guide. And the role of a guide is actually really hard to hire for because on one hand, you need somebody with education experience that has worked with children and knows how to work with children, but it's hard to hire people with education experience because like you said, like it's a clashing of experiences, right? So 
you're trained a specific way to go into a regular classroom. And now you have to recalibrate to go into this space that where there literally, there's no classroom. You're not lecturing. Kids are going to call you by your first name, right? Kids are going to tell you that they don't like stuff like on the spot in the moment when you do it. So it's a total paradigm shift. I don't know of a way to make it easier. It just takes a commitment to solving the problem that we're working on, right? But I think it's just letting go of some of the old stuff that you go to school and you call your teacher Mrs. So-and-so, Mr. So-and-so. And the reason why is because it's respectful. But then you ask the question, well, can you be respectful calling a person by their first name? I think so. Why is there a certain age limit by which you're supposed to start calling somebody by their first name as opposed to Mr. Mr. This, Mr. That? I use that as an example, but there are kids at, at Alpha that just say, hey, Mike. And then there's kids that are like, hey, Mr. Mike. It's just like, there's still parents that are like, no, this is Mr. This. But I just think that like the, in that very simple sort of like execution or that very simple communication with like names and labels, you just have to constantly forget the old stuff that you knew from going to school and working in a school. For me, I have to constantly remember that this is different. This is a different environment. This does not work the same way as a normal classroom. When you're talking, I'm almost thinking, you know, almost to think, you know, what does it even mean to be respectful? Because it's not just about why do you have to have a Mr. or Mrs. to be respected? I mean, actually, the seventh grader, eighth grader also, the part of the philosophy is to respect Yep. The kids and to respect and is respecting saying the kids says I don't like it is respect saying oh you shouldn't say that or is respect saying you know being honest and telling you what I really believe and then doesn't mean I'll agree with you that it's okay and I'll take it and I'll think about it you know yeah I think it's the mutual respect between guide and student right between teacher and student how can you show the kid like look I respect you in your space and the things that you want the things that you like like that's a part of this system. And I think as long as you have that, like you can, any other sort of paradigm shift is easier to make. Yeah. So it sounds like in that system, just a circle, just real quick back to this listening piece, it is a give of communication. It is a lot of give and take of listening and speaking and doing something with what they tell you. Because if you just listen and then don't do anything with it, but you guys actually do something with it. Actually, you either don't have a workshop or you change apps or you... You do something. And I know that you do a lot with public speaking also with the kids. And then you talked about you also teach them public listening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think public listening is just as important as public speaking. And so one of the things that it's actually an interesting function of the way that our model works is that because kids are empowered at such a young age to be able to speak up when they have something to say, we also have to teach them that the real world or not the real world, but the world outside of alpha doesn't yet work this way. So it's going to be difficult. We haven't had a graduating senior yet. We will at the end of next year. When a, a student leaves our school and goes to a college or a university where this is not the method of the day, right? Our students don't have very many times where they have to sit down and listen to people talk it, right? It's always a conversation. So in public speaking, I do want them to sit down and listen to people talk to them. So I built in this in sort of like these structures to teach public listening and this framework for public listening, both in like a keynote audience member type, but also in interpersonal one-on-one communication. So the way that I sort of define it is like public listening, it's like it's what you do to understand where somebody else is coming from, right? So if that is a person that is on a stage, then part of what you can do to understand that person, to, to communicate across differences, right? Part of this is I teach them that listening is communication because they think there's a difference between the two, but really there's great, yeah. 
It's like when I'm listening to somebody, I'm actually telling them something. I'm actually telling them I care about them. I'm telling them I care about what they're saying. It's as simple as when somebody is speaking, all of your attention is on them, right? And what that means is that you're not talking to your neighbor. You're not on your phone. You're not getting up and walking around. You're engaged with them. So if they say something that's funny and you want to laugh, like that's okay to laugh because you're communicating to that person. One, I'm listening to you. But two, what you said was funny and I appreciate it. I teach them to react and I teach my students things in the, on the speaking side that sort of cross this bridge as well. Like I teach them, if you're giving a speech and you ask a question, if you don't answer, that means you're expecting the audience to answer. So if you're an audience member and somebody asks a question and they don't answer it for you, then you should answer the question. <laughs> and, and although like you wouldn't really do that at like a TED conference or, or something like that, they know that it's this silly thing that I've built in. Because when I'm watching speeches, kids will say, have you ever felt like this before? And I will just go, yes. And everyone <laughs> looks at me like, why is that okay? And I'm like, yeah, but like, I'm listening, I'm paying attention. It's that process. In the interpersonal world, it is the idea of and there's all sorts of things that we do, like these digital debates and things like this, where I want students to be able to communicate across differences to know that you don't have to agree with everything somebody's saying, but you should be able to listen to what they said, accept that they believe that, and still have a productive conversation, even if you disagree. What public listening also looks like is coming through Twitter, interactions online. I think online listening is something that nobody, not, not a lot of people talk about. But like what the things that you're reading online, that is the voice of a person. The medium is different, but it's the voice of a person. And you're reading that voice. You're listening to what they're saying. Twitter is the greatest listening platform on planet Earth. Like you can find out exactly what people think about whatever's going on in the world by just searching a hashtag or searching that item, right? So I teach kids how to interact online and how to listen online as well. So listening to the different voices, listening to certain voices, and then do you also teach them when they listen to that, what do they do with it for themselves? Yeah, yeah. I do this exercise and it's, it's basically, it's called accept or reject. Everyone think of something that you believe that most people don't. And, and you get two sentences and you'll stand up and you will you'll say those two sentences. And sometimes I purposefully want them to start off by being silly, right? Like, so a kid will say, I believe, he's like, nobody believes this, but I believe that water is wet. Or they'll say, like, I believe that hot dogs are the most disgusting food ever. And the audience responds with accept or reject. And what happens is you get this playful banter between people and you sort of step back and allow the debate to happen over the silly things, right? So the last one that I saw was my student says, the best types of chips are sour cream and cheddar chips. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, accept. And there's one kid who normally doesn't speak very much. And he said, reject. And so she said to him, she says, well, why? What kind of chips do you like? And he says, well, I don't like potato chips. I only like tortilla chips. And she goes, okay, I like tortilla chips. Tell me which kind of your favorite. He's like, I like the blue corn tortilla chip. So they had this public side conversation where people watch them over something as silly as chips, sort of talk this through. And by the end of the conversation, I was able to point out, guys, see, the disagreement was not the focus of their conversation moving on to something productive where they found common ground. We're like, hey, I like blue tortilla chips too. That, was, that became the focus of their conversation. So if you're not afraid to say, I don't believe that. I think right now people are so afraid to say, I disagree with you. And so in terms of listening, it's fake listening. It's like, I'm just hearing you talk, but I'm going to tune you out because I disagree with you instead of saying, hey, like I care about you, the person, but I disagree with what you said, right? And I think that communication 
between student, between adults. I think that's super helpful to teach kids that it's important to listen, but also respond with the way that you honestly feel if you can trust that the other person is going to do the same. Mm. I love how you, what you were saying earlier, that you say that listening is communication and with communication that you are, you know, basically you're, you, it's kind of like a partnership and how it works together. It's the interplay. One can't happen without the other. Right. And, uh, and having fun <laughs> while you're doing it. <laughs> That's what the goal is. Like, so after, after you do like a round of silly ones, you say, okay, let's get a little more serious. Like this doesn't have to be the closest thing to you, but like, what is the you know, next level? And I start and, you know, I hate the Dallas Cowboys. I think it's the worst football franchise ever. And so I, you know, I'll say that. And I, and I know that there's like, because I know my students really well. I know that there's a kid in, in, in particular who, my theory is that he doesn't really love the team, but he loves it more around me because he knows that I don't like them. And it's this game we play, right? So, so then he stands up and says, okay, well, I don't like the, the Houston Texans. And someone says, reject, why don't you like the Houston Texans? He says, well, I don't like them because Mike doesn't like the Cowboys. <laughs> and yeah, like it's silly and it's fun. And then after we move from that round, I say, okay, now this is where everybody has to really, you have to really test yourself. Something that you believe that nobody else believes. And you hear kids talk about their faith. You hear kids talk about their lack of faith, right? You hear kids talk about school. You hear kids talk about parenting, right? All these things that will come. And these are 11-year-olds, 13-year-olds, sometimes 8-year-olds, right? That are able to do this and they're able to walk away with common ground. There is a particular 8-year-old that I'm thinking of that actually changed the game for her group. And she said, after you say, I reject, you have to say, I respect you. She added this layer that I didn't think of, but she's like, yeah, like, I think it's important for people to know that I don't just respect your idea. I respect you as a person, right? Like, okay, really good. So I love that game. I have had a student that said, I don't think racism exists anymore. Mm-hmm. He's 13, right? <laughs> and a student said, well, clearly I reject that, but I do respect you as a person. I don't want kids to say I respect the idea because I don't necessarily believe you have to respect every idea. But the person behind the idea is more important than the language that they're saying. And I think in terms of active and public listening, what's important is the person. Not The, the message becomes secondary to the person. So, for example, I do not like anything that Candace Owens says. But I respect that she has a giant platform, which means that she's worked really, really hard. Right. And I could have a conversation with Candace Owens, who's very politically polarizing. I could debate her and I think I could win, but I don't ever want kids to lie to themselves and say like, oh, I respect what you're saying and your idea. Because I don't think that's necessarily a prerequisite for listening or communicating across differences or being a good person. And actually, I think if the person is validated as a person, Mm -hmm. the chances that those different viewpoints either come closer together, become less extreme, or maybe something new shows up absolutely that, that surprises them the chances are much higher than just debating you love to think in the future right you like to envision things i can tell what would you like to see in them as leaders in the future and how they might impact yeah i want to see three things i want to see students sort of fit into a couple of camps i actually am really excited to see a student that graduates from our school and says no i'm not going to college and i want them to i want to see them start a business that does really, really well. I would love to see that. I would also love to see a student that says, yeah, I'm going to go to college. And they graduate from that university and they go do really amazing, productive things. I just want to see them live incredible lives. But the thing I really would like to see is 
I relish the day that one day as we scale this system, as we scale this model, that there is a student that is running, opens up and it's running one of the schools and it's in front of a parent and says, I know this is the best place for your kid because I started at Alpha when I was six years old or when I was eight years old or when I was 14, right? I started here and I know that I know this place is the DNA, but I want to see that. My mission and my goal is, is for specifically in the United States and abroad for black people to experience a different type of education. And while Alpha is not a very diverse school right now, I am committed to Alpha because it is the place where I have learned how to do this differently. And it's a model that is great for kids. And I believe it can work anywhere, right? Like I believe it can work in Germany. I believe it can work in Spain. It's actually a school that's very similar to it in Spain. I think this school can work everywhere, anywhere. I hope to see students take this mission and keep running with it. Yeah, you have to see. I think a lot's going to change. So I think the opportunities are coming, I think. Yep. And it seems like you guys, it's good that you have this experience of getting established. So maybe you're ready to be roll it out <laughs> once everybody else is ready. <laughs> there will be a time where somebody comes to us and asks us. We tell everybody and anybody what we do. We will invite anybody. There's been the heads of very large charter networks that will just show up at our building. They will show and they will walk around and look at what we do. We are not afraid to show anybody what we're doing, but we're also not going to create a marketing campaign <laughs> to say, send your kid over here, like pull your kid out of public school. You know, this is not necessarily the philosophy of the school, but my philosophy is that for education to work, we need so many different options that no kid can say they don't have a place to be in terms of school. If you think about cell phones or laptops or buying bread at a grocery store, nobody ever, not nobody, most places in the world don't say you can only buy this one type of bread. And if you buy anything else, you're bad. Right. right? You know, we, we have options and people love options. But for school, people think all schools should be public or all schools should be private. There shouldn't be just there should be as many types of schools as there are types of learners. Right. And they said types of learners means types of communicators slash listeners. So. <laughs> right now, as you're talking, I was thinking, oh, and you're talking about how the school is and you do workshops and you have apps and stuff like this. I'm just wondering, because listening is also this whole communication thing, it's really important to create these experiences because we're dealing with people and it's face-to-face what you're talking about, but also you're talking about creating experiences where you listen through Twitter and then you accept or reject it. There's these different experiences. And I'm wondering, because I'm with you on this one, I think even with communication, I think that people have to experience first before they learn when it comes to that, because most people think, oh yeah, I already know how to do it. And then they actually have these other experiences and they realize, oh, it is so much more than we expected. So I think what you're doing with the kids and what you are preparing them for in terms of taking it to that level, they'll have a skill set that a lot of people don't quite have or they take it for granted that it's so much more. So I think I just want to say that. So it'll be interesting to see how maybe that's something to think about, even how we further develop that. Uh, Well, thank you so much for a great conversation. No problem. Thank you. I am your host, Raquel Ark from Listening Alchemy, and I hope you are inspired by this episode of Listen In and find one person today to practice your listening superpower. Please subscribe and like this podcast and share it with others so we can catalyze a listening movement together. A big thank you to Evo Tiemann for producing the music and Cecilia Mercado for getting this podcast set up. Find more information at www.listeningalchemy.com. 
Enjoy listening in.